We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for design better a breeze. Gusto's also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. One of the oldest human arts is storytelling and really thinking about how does storytelling unfold at a phenomenal storytelling organization like the New York Times, I think it's just a truly golden opportunity, right? Because in many ways, the technical capabilities are there, the business model is there. Like, we've got some really, really rich design problems to work through. Hi, I'm Eli Woolery. And I'm Aaron Walter. The New York Times has gone through many challenges and evolutions during its storied history. Founded in 1851, when it was called the New York Daily Times, it faced draft riots during the Civil War, received the first telegraph transmission from a naval battle in 1904, and was involved in libel suits in the 1960s that helped establish freedom of the press through the U.S. Supreme Court. But it's within the past 25 years or so that the newspaper of record has undergone some of its most radical transformations, shifting much of its focus to the web and app ecosystem from the printed page and expanding into food with NYT Cooking, consumer product reviews with The Wirecutter, and podcasts with The Daily. Today, we chat with George Pechnik, SVP of product design at the New York Times, about what it takes to balance the tension between the rich legacy of the Times with the rapidly evolving digital landscape. We also talk about designing across products and platforms for a more unified experience, something that's very challenging to do, creating a tight coupling between design and engineering, and what the future holds for new products in a world where AI and ML can facilitate content creation but also manufacture deception. Before we get to the show, we want to let you know about a cool project that our friend Felix Lee started called ADP List. If you're early on in your career, or if you're in the midst of a transition, you might want to connect with some top-notch professionals in design. Well, now you can tap into the knowledge and wisdom of some of the most prominent figures in the design industry. And best of all, it's totally free. ADP List is a community platform on a mission to democratize mentorship for all, with over 16,000 verified mentors contributing worldwide, opening up an entire world of possibilities for mentorship and networking. Join ADP List today for free and accelerate your career growth. Just go to dbtr.co slash ADP List. That's dbtr.co slash ADP List. With Freehand by Envision, we've built a best-in-class visual collaboration platform used by thousands of enterprise customers, inclusively priced for the whole organization at 50% the cost of Miro and Mural. And now with the Intelligent Canvas, allowing teams to maximize their impact by adding intelligence, automation, and connection to the canvas. Try Freehand by Envision today for free at freehandapp.com. This episode is brought to you by Fable, who make it easy to build accessible, inclusive products. Learn more at makeitfable.com and later on in the show. George Peshnik, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. It's so great to be here. 
George, you are leading design at the New York Times, which is uh, it's a big task. I mean, it's a very influential institution, and we want to dive into how that works, what the team's like, things that you're learning there. But could we start from the beginning? Like, how did you find your way to the New York Times? What were you doing before you joined the Times? Sure. Well, I should be clear. I, I run the product design team, the small yet mighty product design team at the New York Times. Which one of the things that's really exciting, we'll talk more about that, is that a wide range of design disciplines are represented at times, like from, of course, video to motion to interactive pieces, right? But, you know, product design is sort of where, you know, the canvas and the product making centered anything that in many ways has a digital interface like the team works on. But we can get into that. You know, my big draw to design in software is that I think it's probably one of the clearest expressions of building architecture for the mind. And my you know, career over the last you know, 20 to 25 years has been focused on really sort of expanding human capabilities through design, different types of technologies. So I've worked on everything from productivity tools, like the mainstream productivity tools uh, at Microsoft Office. I've worked on new areas of computational digital imaging, which was about sort of enabling how people could see new dimensions in photos. So stuff like HDR or just how to make people look better in photos. I've worked on creative technologies, a lot of technologies that, that enable human creativity. There's a company founded called 53 that was very much dedicated towards how you could use technologies like tablets and iPads and sketching and writing and drawing to make those really accessible to a wide range of people, enable people to create. And design has been a mainstay in that. And probably the first major intersection point that happened with the Times was in 2008 and nine for me, where I was still at Microsoft creating a a new digital tablet device at that time was called Courier, a two-screen device. And we started looking at the role of content and information in the creative process. And it was one of those things where I started realizing that, you know, the way how a lot of information and or news online is set up is that it still was very much anchored in a metaphor of being just a static impression rather than something that's feeding into a person's process for making better decisions in their life or for a business making a better determination of how they make decisions. Simple actions like copy and paste. When you think about this, like even the metaphor copy and paste, that is like as analog as a metaphor as can be. You know, it was really time to really start thinking anew and afresh around some of those metaphors, especially if we were looking at like what would become the tablet revolution in two, around 2010, of how could like really content more flow into a person's creative process rather than being like just an impression. And what was like prototyping like for those products? Because if, if everything's very analog, I don't know, you're probably thinking about this in a different way. Was there a different type of design process? Yeah. So at that point, I mean, this is going back way, way back, you know, we were prototyping, you know, the hardware, software, and the services experience. This was still back in Microsoft in a place called Pioneer Studios, which was a design venture fund that we had developed to create new consumer experiences. And there, the prototyping like deliberately was set out to think about sort of the human experience across like hardware, software, and service-enabled piece. So that required a particular type of prototyping process. Something that you know we really leaned heavily into is understanding like how do we really get a clear brand story through that experience? How do we develop? I mean, we leaned very heavily into film actually to model out like the course of a day. And another really big piece that happened at that particular point was also then sort of which was somewhat new for Microsoft, really establishing very clear experiential metrics around, you know, if we were to create a device or a new experience that is about sort of the free flow of ideas, like what would it need? 
I would say I had a much better shot at getting some of that stuff out later on. I have to say it as through your own company, you have like much more control. You don't have as many resources around you, but have much more control in terms of shaping like product development processes around this. But some of the things that you saw us do, like for example, in 53, it was like from the very get-go, we would have a really tight coupling between design and engineering. Like we're almost like design engineers would work from the very, very beginning building out not just the design, but also the prototyping environment for the design, the tool making, the mold making. I'm having a little bit of throwback now to my product design studies at Stanford. There were oftentimes just getting the right fixturing in place to manufacture or make something is much even harder than designing the final product. And with digital products, there is actually a very similar piece where you have to think through sort of the system that actually produces then particular digital interface. But, you know, at 53, we had a great chance of doing that the transition then towards the times later on after I'd sold sort of 53 and, and I had integrated the work at, at WeTransfer, it came then through the times because I started just really realizing that how information and the news, you know, needs to work for us. And in this particular moment in history, I think there's never been a greater need for great high quality information to help people understand more about the world and make better decisions around and also started realizing like like you know the technologies have never been as readily available to us which then meant that like on the design side there, there's just such a tremendous i call it like really like a golden era of design right now for us to think through the types of user experience that you could create around the news and information service and so that's also like requiring a very specific prototyping and and development approach george your comment about fixturing when you're when you're machining something you know Brought back a lot of memories. I started in physical product design and was traumatized several times by, you know, work flying out of the vice or the fixture when it wasn't properly fixtured. But I'm curious, you know, we were talking earlier before we, we started recording about paper. I'm a huge fan of that. I've spent a lot of time, my daughter, like making comics on it. And it's just a beautiful product. And you mentioned you brought some design principles in that you learned specifically from a professor named Rolf Fasti. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, Rolf Fasti, who was one of the, I believe, one of sort of the founding professors of the Stanford D School, and one of his strong beliefs was that for any type of problem, you know, sort of problem solving, one of the great skills is to really nurture a really diverse sort of tool set to tackle any type of problem. And he introduced a class called ambidextrous thinking, specifically with that idea in mind. Usually in, in, in sort of, you know, the education or public education systems like you'll come through and you'll be great at like reading writing arithmetic a lot of sort of skills that can easily be sort of measured and tracked but really taking on creative thinking and divergent thinking techniques and seeing them as learnable and, and a conquerable and a skill that you can just get better over time is something that really he brought to the fore and a very universal technique in that is just getting people comfortable with sketching and visualizing an idea idea like you know words can be quite deceiving when you hear something like the word tree like you know with any number of people in the room every person has now a different idea of what that tree could be but even just a few rough contours of a sketch of a tree could show the difference between a pine tree and a palm tree and and a growing tree or a ginormous tree right i mean like a sketch can be incredibly powerful in terms of solidifying you know different ideas and so it was actually a really interesting piece that he set up a class to really help students develop creative confidence through sketching and the visual articulation of their ideas. It's something that then over the course of my career, you know, I had the great fortune of working with like scientists and researchers and some of the smartest people of the world, right? But that would in many ways freeze up when you would ask them to just sketch out a quick image. Like I remember teaching a computer 
game development class at Stanford. And one of the basic assignments was to sketch out the user interface, right? And so many students would make up excuses and apologies for their sketching skills. And I was, was struck by that because like oftentimes their sketches were actually much better than sort of the, the lengthy, wordy descriptions of what ultimately would be a very visceral experience for someone playing a game or, or looking at a computer graphics project, right? So Rolf Fasti really broke down a set of very learnable steps and skills on how to visually articulate an idea. I'll just share a couple. One is like to draw an emphasis on an idea, you might want to highlight it and outline it. So you would take a quick, say, pencil sketch, but then to really draw attention to sort of the main element in a graphic or in a sketch, you want to, of course, draw an outline around it, right? And when I look at the paper tool, like the way how we ended up balancing, for example, a pencil and the outlining tools, they were actually optimized to do exactly that. So the user didn't have to change any settings. And you could go from something like just feeling out a shape to then, you know, locking it onto the page with the outline tool. And that's why, like, in many ways, the outline tool is even called outline tool to even suggest someone who was, like, untrained that you could be using this to outline one of your final choices. So principles like, you know, tiger lines and outlining and just even how color would work together these are a lot of the sort of lessons that Rolf would emphasize. And the last piece is, and that's like something, if you you met him as a person, um, he tried to also exude a tremendous amount of joy in the work. And that's also something we really hope to express in paper, that if anyone who creates in paper should just feel a deep sense of joy in that, was just really rewarding from the get-go. Because like at the very beginning, like most ideas are just really, really fragile. And you can be your harshest critic. So to get over that creating environment that's just, you know, pleasant, enjoyable, and fun is, you know, one of those techniques of just getting you to create more. George, you you just tossed out a gem and we passed right over it. And I wanted to rewind. You said software design is the closest thing to building architecture for the mind. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. You know, I grew up in many walks with my grandfather, who was an architect in Germany, and, you know, he did a lot of his work after World War II in Germany, where architecture in many ways was used to shape sort of a modern society. Uh, there was a big opportunity to actually also rethink and get Germany to think differently about what it should be. And, you know, I can say that now, now I have much better understanding of some of these like very, very lofty ambitions that, that he was trying to articulate. But just growing up, like I started developing sort of a very intuitive I would say like childlike wonder and childlike sense for space and our physical surroundings. And, you know, when I think about also like my mother, my parents came more from the hospitality world and what it means to create a great experience for people where they would enjoy themselves. And I'm more of like the age of, you know, technology. I came to be with PCs and the internet and like the information age where like, you know, our connections more and more and more like, you know, our limbs almost touch and feel into like this ether, like this broader space where bits, information, images, people connect. And a lot of the rules and the governance of that, like ultimately still comes from like our understanding of a physical world. We just oftentimes sort of forgot that it isn't all that different, right? The, the internet and the digital space oftentimes feels just so expansive and infinite, but it isn't, right? Because the amount of space that you can actually design and is somewhat limited and the amount of space that you can sort of touch on. And so when I think about sort of like, you know, we've created this incredible space digitally online where sort of our information or ideas can connect, right? And we need to tend to them with a great care that we would tend to like physical spaces as well, right? And so 
this is sort of one of the things that I just came to understand and see more and more and more over, over the years. There was like the sort of this mad rush of getting everything online, building mediums for medium sakes, this idea of like engagement. These are all these very, very interesting digital sort of ideas. But at the end of the day, like, you know, how does the human feel? How do we get oriented? I feel like sort of, you know, architecture provides just a lot of great guidance and metaphors for that. And sometimes even applying some of those constraints of like the very physical constraints through the digital world is quite helpful to provide, you know, a better user experience. And ultimately, the mind needs to feel at ease and that needs to feel empowered. And that's when I think about digital experience, so many of them actually unfold in the head, right? And that's sort of where we need to, you know, really think about oftentimes software and or user interfaces and architecture for the mind. You spoke earlier, too, about your experience of paper and this tight coupling between de- design and engineering. What are your thoughts? Why doesn't this happen more in most organizations? It's happening much more these days than it did in the 90s or the early 2000s. And again, like when it comes to digital design, that stuff is really, really new, like relatively new in comparison to like architecture and other fields. Like I would say the remarkable shift happened like in the late 90s to the early like 2000s. There was a clear shift that happened from when it comes to like software and digital products, anyone who would just get it to work, you could win sort of a market by just making the software work, right? But the 2000s were very much marked around making software actually start to work really, really, really well. Like where aesthetics, the user experience, motion, animation, like with the launch of the iPhone, it was this was such a breakthrough and pivotal moment where it became clear that you can craft exceptional experiences here. And to a certain extent, like just making it work would not cut it, right? You'd had to go further and you'd had to delight. And we're, all of a sudden you're able to actually concern yourself with, I think, some of the much more important and really, really not more important, but really important questions of like, hey, what's the impact sort of a design what should have, could have, what are some of the values that are being communicated through this? Like, what is sort of this design really doing? And, and that's sort of where that, that partnership between design and engineering, you know, the merge of the art and the science comes into play, right? It becomes really critical as an unlock, right? Because it's no longer good enough to just make things work, right? It becomes really so much more about like, you know, how well can we make them work? Are they doing the right thing? Is this saying the right thing we want to say about our product? Is this really how we want to like show up in the world, right? And that's kind of where sort of that interplay between you know design and engineering is just so crucial because like engineering ultimately opens up the possibilities, and the relationship between the designer and the engineer is is then just really powerful of sort of shaping what that future could be and making it. So that's sort of where I would say, like, it's still to this day, I think one of the most powerful sort of unlocks any organization can have is really sort of get the left and the right brain, the proverbial left and right brain working together. And by the way, I don't want to like, sometimes like engineers can be great designers, great designers can be great engineers, right? At some point, like what really happens is like teams become like in many ways become one in the work. And it's it's an incredible thing to see. Yeah. You Categorized this moment right now as a golden era of design. Could you explain a little bit more, like what makes this a special moment? And, you know, we're a quarter of the way into the 21st century. There's a lot of big things happening right now. So, what makes now a special moment? And what do you see coming soon? Yeah, I mean, specific for design at the Times. You know, when I look at sort of the New York Times as an organization where it stands, it has an incredible business model. Like, you need to look at sort of design, business, technology. They're all connected. Like I would say on the business side, it is so clear that like, 
you know, building an essential subscription, having a subscription relationship with a reporting organization, it makes so much sense. This is the right relationship that you want to have with a newsroom, right? That's out reporting on your behalf from now until, you know, every year to come, right? This is what this organization does. They report. And so it also maps to a really, really phenomenal business model with, you know, subscriptions and advertising. On the technology side, right, there's been, you know, such an explosion of recording capabilities, technical capabilities, graphics capabilities. I mean, I, you know, I had my start in tech trying to get like HDTV off the ground. So working on MPEG-2 and MP3s and all of this, just getting anything to stream over any meaningful distance postage stamp size was a major feat. And today people like on their phones are recording like 4K videos, 8K videos, right? I mean, we don't even know what to do with our pixels anymore. We have so many of them, right? And even an Alexa device has like, I don't know what, 16 microphones in it. Like when you think about sort of the technical abundance that we live in right now, it's fascinating. And then when we look at sort of the richness and the wealth of information that is now online, trying to make sense of that and having sort of information serve us, you know, and fuel our minds, like stoke our desires, help us like understand more of the world. I feel that's kind of where we have sort of the biggest opportunity right now. There are days, I mean, this is going, you know, back even 10 years, I felt like with the, the advents of cell phones and, and online devices, like more and more information was being created, but not necessarily in a form or in a shape that would calm us down. It was very anxiety inducing. And, and I think it's even more so the case, like scrolling endless feeds. I mean, there was like a proliferation of endless feeds, which you're just scrolling through. And we're starting to see some of like, I mean, not starting to see, but there've been like really stark effects this have had on on people's psychology and their behaviors online that to me sort of rethinking just from the fundamental principles of how should information work and how should it work for people to me is a phenomenal design challenge and when you're looking at some of the oldest art form or the one of the oldest human arts is storytelling right and really thinking about how does storytelling unfold at a story, phenomenal storytelling organization like the New York Times, I think it's just a truly golden opportunity, right? Because in many ways, the technical capabilities are there, the business model is there. Like we've got some really, really rich design problems to work through. That's why, like to me, like this is when I look at sort of that triangle, I was like, that's a golden opportunity. You know, as, as well as there being an opportunity there, I imagine there's maybe a little bit of tension sometimes because the New York Times has this rich legacy. It's the paper of record, the gray lady. It's been around for, you know, many decades. And I'm curious how your team kind of navigates maybe the inevitable tension that comes up between, you know, designing for the business, designing for the user and, and the technology available. And I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of discussions around that. I'm curious if you could speak to some of them. Yeah. So I should probably, it's true that the New York Times is a very well-established organization with a tremendous history. And I think it is actually a very important thing to design for and understand like from the subscription and the product relationships that we are creating need to be thought through with the thing in mind that they're probably going to outlast any of the designer working on the team. It's not every day you can design for a product that is actually going to last people a lifetime. Right? There are very, very few organizations that can do that. And it's not just a lifetime. It is when you look at sort of the leadership of the New York Times and the history of the New York Times, like this is a multi-generational product experience, right? And that is a really important thing to understand. And it goes deep to sort of the belief of like, how do you create sort of a trusted and dependable relationship with an audience over the long time, right? So that's something like, you know, I would say the design team is really, really very much aware of and understands sort of how important it is to maintain that, right? That sort of gets into the element of trust. 
The second thing I should say is that the New York Times, this will probably surprise people, I actually found to be an extremely agile organization. And I mean, I'll just point to sort of a few sort of when it comes to sort of the rate of innovation that needs to happen around storytelling, there's been like some really, really big events that happened around, say, COVID. The type of reporting, the type of work that was necessary to cover something like COVID really led the organization to build up, you know, data storytelling capabilities unlike, you know, any other. You know, it led to innovations into what's called like your storylines navigation bar that allowed people to explore a topic that is as complex as COVID at multiple levels from a world map view to a local map view, all the way down to like, you know, specific guidance that you want to give to an individual person, how they can contextualize and personalize a story like COVID. That then like led to the development of our our live blog infrastructure, right? That started really pulling together different types of data feeds and storytelling feeds that, that you're actually seeing in the coverage of the Ukraine. So it's fascinating that at some parts, like the New York Times, yes, is obviously like a storied organization, but the news beat is relentless in the type of stories that we need to cover today. They require the organization to be rather nimble and, and fast acting. And you see that play out. And I would say so one of the design challenges actually to sort of think at what time scale are we doing the development and the design of this work. You know, a brand narrative obviously will play out over you know, multiple years. Being responsive when it comes to our storytelling formats, they need to adjust within days, if not weeks. Right. And then there's broader systems in between, right? You know, what do we do about a publishing infrastructure? How does that evolve versus like an app? Like, so the interesting thing with the New York Times is really also understanding at what rate and what clip are we really, really designing from what I would say is just relentlessly fast and punishing the news beat all the way towards sort of a, a more, you know, a regular standard product life cycle that can unfold over quarters or, you know, halves. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash Design Better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it. It has an unrecoverable crash or someone steals it. How much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter to sign up for a free trial. Try it out and see what you think. Take advantage of their limited-time buy-one-get-one offer for Design Better listeners. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, 
Let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's up. LIFTDesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Our pals over at the School of UX are running the UX Conf September 13th. It's happening online and in person in London. You're going to learn through live demos. This is a no-slide conference. Imagine that. Instead of theoretical talks, speakers will show how they use UX and UI design tools, from Notion to AR Builder. There's no waffle here. Just live demos of UX and UI tools, design quizzes, and a designer versus AI battlefield. Who's going to win? The diverse lineup of speakers come from companies like Eurostar, TripAdvisor, HubSpot, Skyscanner, and others. Get 10% off your ticket using discount code DESIGNBETTERPODCAST10 at theuxconf.com. That's DESIGNBETTERPODCAST10 at checkout at theuxconf.com. Methodical crafts coffee and tea for people of all kinds. They've been around and roasting for more than eight years, and they are certified coffee nerds. On their site, you'll find useful brewing guides that'll teach you how to turn your coffee brewing chore into a beloved ritual and really dial in that perfect cup. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Roaster's Choice subscription and start every day with a cup of methodical coffee. I have to say, without fail, every morning when I wake up, I am excited to drink their coffee because it is fantastic. Methodical's packaging, their website, the entire experience, it's just beautifully designed. Craft a cup that you'll love with Methodical Coffee by visiting methodicalcoffee.com and use our discount code DESIGNBETTER to get 10% off your first order 
of coffee or tea. That's methodicalcoffee.com. You may have seen driverless cars around. Maybe you've even ridden in one yourself. The future is here with Cruise. Cruise is building an all-electric fleet of the world's most advanced self-driving vehicles to safely connect people to the things, people, and places that they care about the most. At Cruise, they're designing experiences that will set a new standard in transportation, tools that enable a safe, smooth ride, and a service that is making a positive impact, one community at a time. Here's the good news. Cruise is hiring. You want to join their collaborative team? Visit design.getcruise.com to learn more about how you can help design the future of transportation. Again, that's design.getcruise.com. Design.getcruise.com to learn more. Hey, Eli and I have another podcast we think you're going to enjoy. It's called Shop Talk from our friends Dave Rupert and Chris Coyer. Dave and Chris draw from their day-to-day lives building for the web and being web technology junkies to start discussions about things that matter to developers today. These guys have been at it for a long time. Their combined half-century of expertise in both client work and product work brings perspective to the show, and they bring in guests as well that add extra expertise. You can listen to old Uncle Dave and Chris on Shop Talk and stay in sync with the industry but not take it too seriously. Find Shop Talk anywhere finer podcasts are offered. And now, back to the show. One thing that's fascinating to me is, you know, what you just described, that this is a 171, 172-year-old organization, and there's certain aspects that inherently have to be nimble, like to move with the news cycle, but also the business model seems to be evolving very quickly and intelligently, like very thoughtfully over the past, you know, let's say 15-ish years, transitioning away from ads or less ad revenue reliance, more on subscription, and then broadening the touch points with subscribers that, you know, for you know, 170 years, people have had one type of relationship with the New York Times, and now the New York Times is recipes. It's how we we cook our meals. It's the games that we play. It's the wire cutter and the product recommendations we get. It's the sporting news that we get. It's, you know, podcasts, like one of the most popular podcasts out there. It's like all these different touch points in the curious life. Could you talk a little bit about that philosophy, how that's unfolding, and then how design and technology is supporting that? Yeah. First, I mean, we want to talk about like you know, the business model, I mean, the big shift really happened with the launch of, of sort of the subscription business, I think, like 2014-15. And now, like, the company is very much focused on, you know, the design and the development of the essential subscription. Advertising plays a really key role in that as well. Because, like, I mean, we don't think as advertising as this other thing. It is part of the user experience. And we want to have, like, the most, you know, premium advertising experience as well. I mean, these two things should not be in conflict. And then, in fact, they aren't when we do our work right. You know, the journey that sort of the Times is on right now with essential subscription and and areas like cooking and games and the wire cutter is really providing sort of high quality premium information and live services to our readers as part of, you know, the essential subscription. Like one of the things that really like sets sort of a New York Times 
reader apart more than anything else is that they're lifelong learners and that they're inherently and deeply curious, right? And you see sort of a deep interest in travel, you see a deep interest in sort of the news about the world, but you also see people like seeking for high quality information around other areas of their life, like shopping, like cooking, like games. And, you know, one of the beautiful things that we get to do at the times is craft exactly those types of experiences and show sort of like, well, what would sort of the, one of the highest quality expressions of like a cooking product look like or a games product look like? And that is in many ways what the times and my design team is looking at building. Actually, I'll share a really, really interesting piece and we'll go back to why this is such a golden opportunity for design right now. Most organizations will say like, okay, we just do video or we're going to do just games or we're just going to do like one expression. And that is not in many ways how human life works. Like human life is a fundamentally multimedia experience. And one of the things that the Times does, it even says our report is going to be fully multimedia. Like, you know, there's some folks in the newsroom that will even say is like, our job is to figure out, well, what is the form the story deserves, right? It's not like we need to record a podcast or we need to do this, like, or we need to write an article. No, it starts like, what is sort of the topic at choice that we need to like cover right now? What's the best form for that? And so if it ends up being a, you know, documentary or video piece, well, then that's what it becomes. Or if it's an article, then that's that. If it's an interactive piece or if it's a new app experience, right? The Times is willing to then go the distance and invest in the right expression. Like I would say it's a very, very unique place. I'm saying this having worked on multimedia authoring tools like PowerPoint and other areas, right? The New York Times is so special in its pursuit of trying to figure out how to tell the right story, independent in many ways of sort of like what is given. And I think that is a huge innovation unlock for the times. You know, there are huge topics that are coming. Like when you think about, it, again, that nimbleness allowed the times to cover something like COVID. You're seeing even the Ukraine coverage right now, like times trying out different formats in different ways to convey sort of like what is happening in a conflict as complex as this. When you think about like sort of the intercept of cell phone calls from soldiers back home, that analysis, or the overlay of satellite photography and underground footage, the combination with like, you know, straight up like article from Washington views there, right? You're starting to piece together a very, very rich view of, you know, a complex topic. Or when we're looking at future areas like, you know, climate coverage, you know, there won't just be one medium Right, that will allow you to sort of tell a complete picture of something like climate. It will require multiple dimensions, right? And I like that one of the things that people will know and come to the times for that they'll understand that you know the times will try and design sort of a, as complete and as rich story around a particular topic, and then follow it over the long time period, right, to get the story across. Yeah, if we could just dig into this a little bit more, the multi-product situation. One thing that I I know is having worked in companies that have been kind of singular product companies to multi-product companies, it's easy to come up with great ideas for new products and to build new products. What's hard is to support all of those and connect them. So how does your team think about that this is an ecosystem, not verticals, but an ecosystem of products? Yeah, that's a great question. So for us, like the center of the product experience is our core news app or the core news, right? And this is something that's, again, unique to the times. The news is incredible because it's always fresh. It's always new. It's, you know, so it's almost like, you know, sometimes likened it to the sun has this gravitational pull, right? And we can use in many ways the news to then 
bring people in on, you know, sort of some of the most important stories of a particular day, right? And that is sort of where the news plays sort of a central role. From that, there are then sub-brands and I would say deeper experiences and verticals. And that's where you see sort of an experience like cooking, games, and wire cutter come into play that then feed off of the news. And then they're building out like sort of strong destinations in their own right. So there's like, by the way, in terms of like the curation and the shaping of the broader sort of product ecosystem, you know, that is going to evolve over the years, right? When does a new product get added? When is something more of an app? Those are things that in many ways, you know, will continue to be worked on. But that relationship between sort of the news as the mainstay and then moving readers into like, you know, call them deeper sub-brand experiences is sort of the flow that in many ways like we're designing. And you can see that, for example, in the news app, uh, we have like a games tab in there. We're working on an audio experience in that area. And that's sort of a metaphor we're going to start expanding. And then some of my team is then essentially starting to work about sort of the next generation of the cross-app navigation model. Like at some point, we're going to run out of tabs, right? So we need to start thinking about, okay, well, what is sort of that next structure? So you have a team that's looking into those. There's a set of teams that are essentially then working on the, you know, the various sub-brands, like a team focused on cooking. And they are incentivized and motivated to actually create sort of the best cooking product at its own right. And then you connect that then through, you know, either through promotional mechanisms or editorial mechanisms or UX mechanisms to the main product, which is, which is the news. George, as a designer and a technologist, I'm curious, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning are top of many minds right now for people who are curious about that. And there's been these huge strides lately. And I'm sort of curious on two fronts. One is, what are your thoughts on how it's going to sort of either augment us or potentially displace some of us as designers and developers and programmers? And then also, specifically for the Times, there's obviously this huge potential for creating things like deep fakes and news that's not real. And I'm sure there's a, a human element to fact-checking that, but is there also a technological or design approach there? Yeah, I mean, I'm so, so, so excited personally about sort of the breakthroughs and advances in AI and, and language models that have happened. Because like, you know, text, and I'm saying this, like when you think about sort of what the word processor enabled for people, being able to move paragraphs around and arrange things, like language transform models allow us to like reason and shape a large corpus of text, like with the ease of a word processor, but do some really sophisticated things such as like, you know, hey, present this information table form, compare and compress these two elements, like, hey, summarize, you know, 10 articles, pull out particular points that might be relevant to a topic of interest. Like, that's just incredible that we're at this moment of time where we have like a higher level word processor can work on our behalf across like corpus of text that no one could even read in their lifetime, right? It's unbelievable unbelievable and so in many ways it's like that's sort of the language model and the transform model right that exists on the flip side there's still something and i don't think that that got any easier or simpler to do there's the knowledge model which still requires like someone doing the actual work like talking to people doing the reporting doing the fact checking doing the refining like ai didn't make that any easier you still got to Put on your shoes, walk to places, check things out. If you want to generate like new, dependable information, like I don't see sort of a 10x improvement of how that got easier all of a sudden. To be able to attribute a specific sentence and quote to a person, like you need to be there, hear the person say that, and know the person and fact check all of that stuff, right? So that stuff didn't get any easier. 
But I would say there's a tremendous opportunity now to look at the marriage of sort of knowledge bases and, and language models, right? And that's sort of where we are. And I, you know, I, I hope the Times is going to play a role in that. I mean, I'm sure the Times is going to play a role in that. I mean, this is so nascent. Like, I think it's fair to say this is one of the biggest technological revolutions that we're seeing. And if we do it in the right way, this could be incredibly empowering. You know, when I look at some, like I would say, simpler but very, very useful and important cases, like, for example, when the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the news broke around that, like the Times was doing a tremendous amount of reporting on that topic. And, and you know, we're using some of them our, you know, some of our investments in, in machine learning there to also like, there were so many stories being written at that time that we didn't know what a reader knew at this point when they were coming to sort of the New York Times. So surfacing the right article to the reader given on what they had seen before is a very, very useful application or even making adjustments to a headline. For example, like in the US, we would describe it as Roe v. Wade, but for an international reader, you'd have to describe it as America's abortion law, right? Those types of adjustments, right? It's really, really useful to sort of work with the machine and the, you know, the right recommendation services. But again, those techniques are relatively straightforward in comparison to some of the breakthroughs that we're currently seeing through the large language transform models, like ChatGPT and others. So I don't know. I mean, this is like, if I had another lifetime, I, I would have another copy of myself just starting an entire team like working on this area because it's just such a fundamental change of how we can deal with like a large corpus of text and other images i'm sure soon too and video soon too right and that's it's exciting to think that we're as a human species are going to gain this capability over the next couple of years it's interesting to hear you categorize what's happening right now with ai and some of these breakthroughs is like this special moment. We heard the same thing from Matt Mullenweg uh, just recently. Talked to him this week, founder of WordPress, and sees also like the rate of change and growth in technology right now is much faster than anything that he has seen is what he was saying. But, you know, and there's also something on the generative side. I mean, this is one of the pieces where I would say like, you know, we need to just be really clear. Like, there are some really useful applications of generative AI as well, but they all sort of hallucinate a lot of information, right? And that sometimes is okay to hallucinate the information, you know, if it's really not that critical. But there's some work to be done to be just much more transparent about when this is happening, how this is happening. And I, I'm having like a little bit of throwbacks here with sort of work that I got to do with Felice Frankel, who was a science photographer and back when I was working on computational digital photography. Like, you know, these ideas, when you even look at an image representation, like I think it's totally fine and good to use these technologies, but you got to be transparent about it. You know, at this point, I mean, you can see it. No one is fooled anymore by like a Facetune filter. In fact, people already assume that you used a Facetune filter, right? There was a moment in life where people weren't even sure that it is ethically okay to use Facetune. And today, if you don't use Facetune, right, you'd be like, you know, of course, you got to make people look a certain way, but. <laughs> All that said, I think a good way around that is just to be very, very transparent about what are sort of the processing steps. And that's sort of some of the things going back to sort of the work, some of the interesting challenges that the team really has as we're working through even more publishing tools. How do you really log sort of the transformative data and the evolution of it in a way that the Times upholds sort of its mission to be the, a paper of record? One kind of interesting facet to all this is that it feels like you know legislatively at our government is is as often very far behind the times in Europe they've already been working on legislation that AI is not allowed to essentially impersonate a human being and I'm curious like what are your thoughts around the role of government and institutions around sort of protecting your average user from misuse of AI 
you know, I'm not a policy expert on that. I do like, look, I'm just going to say, I do believe governments has a role to play and a really important role to play. I'm just thinking about even questions around copyright and fair use. Like when I even think about like the safe harbor regulations around that, like, I mean, there are so many questions that there are even attributions. How does attribution work in these models? Like, I think it's a really interesting time. Like, even if you just think about just fundamentals of copyright, like, you I mean, sampling has been around since ever, but we're really talking, like, when it comes to large language models, we're talking about sampling machines that can sample from everything, everywhere, at any given moment, right? You want to make sure that we don't fall into the traps of, like, you know, aggregation, that aggregators in many ways end up becoming, like, all powerful in this mix, right? I hope people will look at the last sort of 20 years and say, like, okay, has the internet evolved and developed in a way that has supported the widest range of creativity and the widest range of expression or not? And, like, I think there is something to be learned there. Your team has to design for some difficult contexts, including, you know, situations like journalists who are in war zones and they have to upload photos or file a story from a war zone. How do you design for those situations? You know, you don't want to put designers in in those situations so they can do their own sort of ethnographic research. But, you know, how do you think about those difficult design problems? So one, the newsroom is a formidable partner, right? I mean, this is kind of like where I would say designing like our editorial tools or even publishing tools here, like we're dealing with an expert user. Right? In many ways, you can talk to journalists, right? And they're extremely articulate and they know about this. So in many ways, like it's this is sort of the difference of designing for like consumer products versus like pro tools. I mean, we're creating pro tools here. Like, you know, the need for speed, the need for collaboration, and the willingness to even customize tools to meet very specific demands is something again where the times will go above and beyond. Right. And that's exciting. There are often days where I think I would like in sort of our publishing tools, sometimes for like the developer division at Microsoft, where like you know, Microsoft would go at great lengths to enabling developer productivity, like the New York Times. We want to go to great lengths to enabling sort of the productivity and also like for where we like this, you know, the safety of journalists in the field. For example, like make a metric like time to file, making it easy for people to file a story or even a beginning of a story. I mentioned like our live blogging infrastructure, like we would go and build like, for example, like bots within Slack where journalists could provide really, really quick reporter updates right from within Slack, so within existing tool flowing uh, workflows that people are using, or a team has built like extensions within something like Google Docs to be able to like support lots of collaborative flexibility around working, but still allow the team to build like a rich interactive graphic on top of that. So depending on where you are within sort of the flow, like the team, the workflow, I mean, we have a team specifically devoted towards workflow they will look at building sort of the right bespoke solution. But time to file is a really important metric that sort of the team looks at. So when it comes to like the ease and the speed. Now, speaking about sort of the transformation of the times, right? Going from an organization that used to just print once or twice a day to one that is now providing, you know, 24-7 coverage. Every time like you see sort of live coverage on the New York Times, that's a massive shift and breakthrough actually (laughs) in terms of how... The reporting team works, the tooling that's necessary to support it. And, you know, it's actually really exciting to see that the New York Times on and on is is actually now sort of seen as one of the top destinations for live news, which is, you know, very, very, like, at face, you'd be like, wait, hang on, this newspaper place is where you go for live news? And the answer is absolutely, you're going to get some tremendous live coverage now from the New York Times. And so the tooling that the team's built to support that has been just really incredible effort. 
George, you're surrounded by news and other types of content associated with the New York Times. But what are you reading or listening to or watching right now that's really inspiring you? I'm really enjoying, again, like a variety of podcasts. But to be honest, like I always will draw sort of an intersection circle of something that the Times is doing, and then I want to sort of see what else is around there. So for example, like we're working on like our audio app and audio products, and I'm like consuming everything audio related right now, just to sort of do a good compare and contrast around that. So I've been certainly like dipping into a bunch of podcasts. I'm also, when I can, I really am enjoying sort of the speaking about other golden areas. Like I do believe sort of the series from Netflix to HBO's, like the quality of, of just video and film production that has happened. It's just been astonishing. I have to say, like, I've been really, really surprised how good the recommendation servers have gotten on SoundCloud. So there's just a constant new, like, if you really want to hear, like, new sounds, like SoundCloud has been, they've stepped up the game. I don't know what happened, but my recommendations on SoundCloud have been, like, phenomenal to listen to. And then in terms of the other inspiration, I mean, that's sort of a, it's a, a little different piece, but for me it is, going back to sort of creating the architecture for the mind, there's also taking care of the body. So I've been just very much about just making sure that I like exercise, get out, get into like whether it's biking or swimming, connecting in nature, but just being able to feel and live and be in the body is something that's just so true. I always try to spend some time with that too. And then look, I'd like to say I married the right person to keep me inspired so my wife constantly has fresh ideas and different ideas. So we just got back from our, it took a while for us to do our honeymoon, but she was like, we're going to go on a safari for our honeymoon. I was like, okay, let's go see animals. I just got to do that as well. So that was super, super inspiring, actually. For someone who worked on cameras, photography, now sees like sort of these raw animals in an environment that is absolutely not built, but ruled by the animal kingdom. That was like a really, really great experience for me. That's great. George, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been so great being here. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetter.com slash podcast. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.